Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive, professionally and personally. Hello and welcome to episode 35 of the Habits of Leadership podcast. My name is Dan Hasler from Cut Through Coaching and joining me today is Mr. Tim Perkins. Hello Dan, how are you? I'm very well mate, you look very cleanly shaven today. Ah, oh, thanks Dan, I'm glad you noticed. You're usually very hirsute, but yes, not today. Yes, well you're looking quite hirsute <laughs> to yourself today. <laughs> I am indeed. Would you like to touch my clean cheeks Dan no, across the desk? No, keep your cheeks on your side yeah. of the desk. Yeah. Now, um, you've been chatting with someone and that's what we're going to do today. We're going to listen to a conversation you had. Um, who were you chatting with and what were you chatting about? Fascinating chat actually, Dan, with Rachel Robertson. So Rachel is an Australian woman who had a very interesting and unexpected career move where she became the head of one of the Antarctic bases uh, with a, a team that she was working with under incredibly challenging circumstances. And uh, she tells us about her story and she's written a book about this mm. called Respect Trump's Harmony. Right. And so, yeah, we're going to explore that book that she's written and uh, and look at the idea. So essentially what she's saying here, and, and it's, you know, I'm going to use it in a slightly clickbaity sort of way, that she's saying that a culture of harmony um, and keeping the peace can actually get in the way of growth and creativity in a team. All right. Um, so, yeah, so we're really looking at the idea of respect in the workplace. Okay, great. Well, let's jump into it and have a listen. All right. So it's a total delight to have uh, Rachel Robertson as our guest on the podcast today. And Rachel is an Australian from Victoria who's recently published a book called Respect Trump's Harmony, Why Being Liked is Overrated and Constructive Conflict Gets Results. Really uh, fascinating book, which I've just finished reading. And it's, it's great to have you with us today, Rachel. Oh, thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Ah, it's really wonderful to have you with us. So um, really appreciate your time. And I know that you are incredibly busy. I actually read somewhere that you are Australia's most in-demand female presenter and speaker at the moment. Is this correct? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's all my whole career is accidental. My whole career, which I trace back, uh, as you know, is it was a, a sliding doors moment that just happened. But it's all been sort of this, yeah, accidental. And I guess the, the career I have now, which is presenting virtual and remote around the world, mm. again, just sort of popped up as a, you know, necessity as a mother of invention kind of thing that I had to had to do it. And so, yeah, I'm learning all this new stuff about technology and working to a camera and, oh, gosh, steep learning curve, this one. <laughs> Having the word Trump, was that a calculated move? Was that Did someone say to you, you can't possibly put the word Trump in the current environment in the I, title I, of your book? Yeah. No, it's a great question. I, I fought hard for it I because oh, okay. I've been using that phrase for, for 10 years. Yeah. And um, so if you Google Respect Trump's Harmony, I'm like the first five pages on Google. And I, it's been my word for probably longer, 15 years, I've been saying Respect Trump's Harmony. Yeah. And my publisher, Wiley, said, oh, look, we, we think you need to say, um, it needs to be called Respect Beats Harmony. And I said, well, no, because respect doesn't beat harmony. You want both. But if you need to choose... If, you, if the, the two are in conflict, then you need to choose, then you choose respect. It's not one beats the other. It's that, you know, if you have to choose, then respect Trump. It's like a card game, respect Trump's harmony. And I said, it's a, there's a, it's a nuance to that word that you can't replace with any. And I said, they explained the whole president thing. And I said, yeah, yep, I know that. And I said, but I'll take that risk. It's been fascinating. I've done a lot of work in the US in the last four weeks. I think I've done about gosh, I don't know, probably 40 interviews and podcasts and articles. Oh and it's only been, yeah, it's only been when I talk to people in New York and it they don't mention the 
president, but they mention what good leadership should look like in a crisis <laughs> and what poor leadership looks like in a crisis. And yeah. I just purely talk about when I led the plane crash in Antarctica and what I learned about being poised and stuff and choosing your words correctly. And, you know, yeah. there's no off-the-cuff comments when you're in a crisis as a leader. And it's been fascinating that yeah. uh, the rest of them just gloss over it. It's sort of like, yep, just another word. Because I was I was ready for it. I was prepared for wait. I was waiting for the pushback on the actual word Trump. But it's been fascinating that um, except for with the exception of one or two in New York, and that even then they were talking about their governor. They were saying how great their governor had handled yeah. the lockdown and everything, and and the protests compared to their president. <laughs> and I just I just steer away from the president. But yeah, I fought really hard for that word because there is no other word that actually conveys the meaning. Tell us, how did you end up in Antarctica? Because a lot of people uh, listening to this may not have heard of you before. Um, give us, give us a quick, intro, you know, uh, intro into how you ended up in Antarctica. Yeah, and I'd love to say it was a strategic career move, um, <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't. It, I was, uh, I was actually the chief ranger of the Great Ocean Road at the time, so I had a fantastic job. You know, my office was the Twelve Apostles and the Great Ocean Road, and it was just, you know, beautiful. But I was sitting there one Saturday and I was flicking through the, the career section of the newspaper, just, you know, as you do on a Saturday morning. And I saw this picture of, of a penguin in the career section and it, that caught my eye because it's like, wow, that's, that's a bit random to see a penguin in the career section. And then I, so that's initially what caught my eye. And then I looked at the ad and it was from the Australian Antarctic Division and they were recruiting for station leaders. And so I thought, okay, I went online and I found out that the what what struck me was that they were recruiting for, for qualities and attributes. So they were recruiting for uh, resilience, empathy and integrity. You actually didn't need to know anything about Antarctica. You just needed to be able to demonstrate resilience, empathy and integrity. And I just saw what a, what a fantastic way to recruit. Like I think any, any person listening to this who's had to hire people will, will know that there's certain qualities you need for a job. And if you can hire them for the quality, you can teach the technical. That's a lot easier to teach, you know, like than resilience. And I was recruiting park rangers at the time and I was getting all these brilliant, you know, young people coming out of university with fantastic qualifications, you know, HDs in um, environmental management. But when I put them in the park with the visitors, they were just, oh, look, I, I'd say to them, can you go and do a patrol around the park? And they'd get in the car and they'd drive around the park. And I'd like, no, I want you to stop, get out of the car, talk to our visitors, offer them a map, see how they're going. You know, that kind of empathy that you need yeah. for your, your customers and your visitors. And so when I saw this ad, I thought, what a brilliant way to recruit. So my fiendish plan was only ever to get to the interview stage so I could find out what the questions were they were using and I could copy the questions and bring them back <laughs> to my role. I never wanted this job ever. And I just wanted to get to the interview stage. It was only once I'd applied that I find out they don't have an interview. They actually have a, uh, a boot camp. So I was shortlisted for this boot camp that goes for a week in the central highlands of Tasmania. And I end up on this boot camp with 13 men competing for a job that I didn't even want. And then halfway through the week, I started to think, well, this could be a really cool opportunity. You know, obviously they think I can do it. They, the Antarctic Division thinks I can do it. They wouldn't have shortlisted me into that top 14. And then they rang and offered me the job. And I thought, you know what, I'd rather regret what I did than regret what I didn't do. And the only reason I ended up there was because it was an opportunity that came my way. And I thought I'd rather do it and go, what have you done than not do it and spend the rest of my life looking back going, I wonder what would have happened. And as you say, it completely changed my life because I have a new career now. I also met my husband this way because the uh, the psychologist who did my debrief on the way home said to me, so on the ship, we're on the ship for two weeks on the way home and we have a debrief. 
And the psychologist said to me, oh, you need a new challenge. You'll come off the back of this high and you might get depression, uh, you know, or something. So to, to try and keep yourself motivated, let's think of a new challenge. And I thought, oh, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go back to uni and study because I've sort of got the leadership stuff. Let's do management. So I went back to do my MBA at university and that's where I met my husband and now I've got an 11-year-old son. So my my family, my job, my entire life, the fact I'm here talking to you, I can trace back to this tiny little advertisement that I saw one yeah. day in the newspaper and it's just, it blows me away how life is like that sometimes. Yeah, so tell me, when, when you get there, um, mm. you're faced with a very disparate group of people um, that you have had no say in selecting um everyone's there for different purposes um everyone's got different roles everyone's got wildly different personalities and you know every aspect of the people that you're with you know you've got different genders you've got different sexualities you've got different ages you've got different life experiences you've got different cultural backgrounds and your incredibly simple job under these incredibly simple circumstances <laughs> that antarctica presents is to make this you know a group that that pulls together and works together really well. And if I can just go to, <laughs> um, there was an ad in the paper for this, which I've heard you mention before, you know, a hundred years ago or roughly a hundred years ago, you can correct that for me. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, the sort of characteristics and, and what they were after in people who were going down to Antarctica. Um, tell us a bit about that and then we'll move on to how you wrangled these cats. Yeah, it was the uh, original ad that Ernest Shackleton put in the uh, in the paper, oh gosh, in 1914. So yeah, just over 100 years ago. And mm. it was men wanted, you know, men wanted, um, chance of survival is low, but you'll get, you know, glory and recognition if you're successful. It's not paid, <laughs> it's unpaid. And it's like the most unattractive ad. And yet they had 5,000 men applied yeah, for this job. Yeah, they were inundated. And it was like, yeah. wow, they were inundated. And so for me, what and you're spot on, it was like someone had got a big fishing net and had just scooped up a pool of people with a sample of every type of person in the community. So every type, every, you know, all religions, cultures, thinking preferences, personality types, professions, ages, generation, gen, you know, generate uh, sex, you know, you name it. It was just extraordinary. And the, the moment when the... Um, the enormity hit me was actually our get to know you barbecue. So I didn't recruit these folks. I had no input whatsoever. I was just given them. And we had a get to know you barbecue in Hobart before, you know, before we started our training. And we're standing there and my, it was my plumber who um, had been to Alaska, I think, and he was telling this story and he said, oh, you know, it was so cold in Alaska. You put your foot down on the puddle and the water turns to ice under your foot. Mate, it must have been at least minus 21 degrees. My electrical engineer, I've got an electrical engineer from Germany and he's standing there and he says, well, water freezes at zero. So it must have been at least zero, not at least minus 21 degrees. Yeah. And I'm, I'm German. And I am precise. Spot on. And I'm yeah. like, oh, dear. And that was the moment. That was the moment where I thought, wow, okay, we are not all going to love each other. You know, and we didn't, and we didn't even all like each other. But I need to do something that creates the expectation that we will always respect each other. So I took them privately, and I said to the plumber, "Look, um, he's an electrical engineer, and he's from Germany. So professionally and culturally, he's from a very precise, exact place. So when his brain hears data that's incorrect, he will he will correct it, and that's just him. That's the way his brain operates. He's not trying to make you look stupid or humiliate you. It's just how he is." Uh, that's his, the way his brain operates. I then had to go to the engineer and say, look, 
when someone's telling a story or a joke and it's nothing important, it's not a you know, it's no not germane to anything, it's just a little story or joke and you correct them publicly, it's actually a bit humiliating. So just let it go. You know, let it go. It's not important. And it was fascinating for me that at our very first meeting that I recognised that that would be a role that I would have to take on, that I'd, I didn't anticipate that. I really didn't. But I knew that if I could create a culture from the start where respect was the most important thing, that I'd have a shot and have a chance of building a, a robust team. And But it blew me away. That was the moment where I thought, because I, I thought, you know, we'll all be similar people. And at first glance, you kind of look at the team and think, well, yeah, I can see similarities, but we're not. We were completely different. The diversity in the team was extraordinary. And I think it's the same in any workplace. There's a lot more diversity once you start thinking particularly around cognitive diversity. So not just demographic diversity around gender or age, but um, thinking about cognitive and how we think differently and, and different personalities. It was massive. And it was it was the biggest biggest challenge I had was actually the, the thinking preferences of the team. And they're just different yeah. people. And was that your actual role, Rachel, when you when you were first recruited for this? What did they, you know, what was the job description? What were you applying for? Yeah, it's fascinating. The, the um, it was a station leader, so I think from the job description and all of the the interview and the training, and, and so the, the the idea of the boot camp is that they get a good look at us as leaders. So we we do this boot camp. And we, we actually have to mentor someone in that shortlist. So we're mentoring someone we're competing with, which is a really extraordinary dynamic. And, wow. you know, there's a whole heap of activities they give us. Like one of the activities is we're given a set of seven values and we have to choose which value is the most important to us and then stand up and convince the rest of the the, the, the rest of the boot camp why our value is more important. And it's things like um, integrity, loyalty, innovative, hardworking, and you had to convince the rest of the other 13 people why your value was the most important. And straight away, I just thought, no, you know, I, I have no right to do that. If I've picked integrity and you've picked loyalty, I have no right to say, Tim, you're wrong. Loyalty is not in, the most important. Integrity is the most important mm. because that's your value. And yet, so I didn't, I, I stood up and said, look, I picked integrity for this reason. I fully respect why you picked loyalty. I understand that, but I picked it for this reason. Some of the other applicants got up and they were all, oh, you know, this big competitive no you can't say loyalty is number one you know you can't say this blah blah and I had this epiphany like it was a penny drop and I thought that's how you recruit for empathy you put someone in a situation where they need to demonstrate it so it was never about the best value or the most important value it was about demonstrating the empathy to be able to say I believe this but I respect that you believe that and that's the whole idea of that little scenario and what what so what the consequence of that was the Antarctic Division get a good look at you at that week and they know fully what you're like as a leader. So therefore the, the role is more around managing people. But but what hit me that I wasn't prepared for was I recognised that because I was with this team 24 hours a day, unless I actually managed them and led them properly, they would come knocking on my door at all hours and they'd expect me to solve problems for them because I was there, you know, and, and I, I thought that was my job to be there. And so initially I was they're available 24 hours a day but I had to learn to put those boundaries in and I had to equally learn how to create a culture where they could talk to each other instead of running to me all the time because I just thought that's not sustainable for a year I just I can't do that for a year so it was a big big learning curve for me in a you know like a leadership laboratory almost everything I did down there was just a matter of right I, I need to do something here around you know setting up the relationships with the team or, or the main thing was creating a culture where people would speak up and that was my main goal because I, my 
biggest fear was someone spiraling with depression or someone exploding with anger because as you know once you're in Antarctica you can't come home like once that ship leaves in February there is no way in or out of the place for the next nine months so I thought wow how do I create this culture where I can get people to speak up deal with stuff move on and if I went a second time if I went back down there I'd have those tools but yeah going the first time in I had to learn those tools on the hop and, and trial and error I got, got some stuff right and I got some stuff wrong. Yeah, and so I suppose from what you're just saying there, Rachel, you, you're talking about creating an environment where if you're doing things the right way and although you are available 24-7 to them, you don't actually want to be, I wouldn't imagine. I don't think that's healthy for any leader or sustainable for any leader. Creating an environment where people are actually going to um, manage themselves and, you know, we'll get to the, the title of the book now about respect, but there's also the, the story that I've heard you tell about the, the 12 angry men example and, you know, the power of speaking up, that the 12 angry men not being 12 men that you worked with but from the, <laughs> yeah, from the film. The jury, yeah. <laughs> the yeah. jury story and about how they all, you know, were quite happy to get out of the room as quickly as possible and go back to their normal lives. But one of them said, yeah, actually, we've got a real responsibility here and, you know, I, I, I need to look at this differently. It sounds like that's sort of the role that you naturally take from that story you've just told as well about the values. Yeah, it really was. And it was, it was oh gosh, there was probably dozens of things that we didn't, that we didn't agree on. And it, so it was simple things like um, a couple of the team never left the station. So they, they, were there for the money. It's a well-paid job and they were there for the money and they made no excuse for that or, or no, they didn't apologise for that. And it really frustrated a couple of the other members of the team because they were there for the experience. They were there to experience Antarctica and see the wildlife and see the aurora australis, you know, in the sky. And they couldn't get, they just could not get their heads around the fact that these people would give up everything they loved. So their, their families, sport, community, everything you love, you have to give up for a year and they could not wrap their heads around the fact that these people had given up everything and yet weren't experiencing Antarctica. And they started to get agitated about it. And I said, look, and that's where the whole respect thing comes in. I said, you don't need to understand why they do that. You just need to respect that that's their choice. You know, that's their choice. They want It doesn't affect you. Um, you you stick by your guns. You don't need to, to do that. And I'm seeing it more and more in the world now with all the, particularly in the US, with all the discord over there that I think – you know, it'd be a whole lot better if we could just wrap our heads around, just respect other people's difference and diversity. You don't have to bring them around to your way of thinking. You don't have to, you know, convince them. You can persuade and influence, which is what happened in, in that the jury case. But it's not about, you know, bat batting someone around the head saying you're wrong. It's actually, you know, using influence and facts and data to try and persuade someone into another fashion. But I think yeah, the whole, we need a lot more respect in this world at the moment and just understand that people are different and that's okay. That's great. It's yeah. really good that we're different. And look, one of the ways that you talk about in your book um, about developing that respect for other people and it, and it brings, it, it made me think as I was reading your, your work, it made me think about the work of uh, Ed Shine from the States who's a great leadership uh, writer and has done a lot of work in organisations in the States and he wrote the book The Path of Humble Leadership and he talks about this concept of personising, which is really about getting to know the people um, that you work with. And as you say somewhere in your book, I believe, you know, people won't remember what you did or what you said, but they'll remember the way that you made them feel. Um, and you had this concept of Super Tuesdays down in Antarctica. Can you tell us a bit about Super <laughs> Tuesdays? 
and I must have been listening to the US politics at the time to even come up with that, yeah, that concept. Yeah. That, that, <laughs> it, um, the, the massive electoral colleges. Um, it was, it, yeah. Because yours was wasn't about massive it, electoral colleges, right? Yours no, is a totally it, different it Super wasn't. Tuesday. Yeah. It, was, it was totally different. It was um, desperation because I really, oh, look, I, I was concerned that I did, there was, there's no TV, so we don't have television. We also don't have video conferencing, so we don't have, even today, there's no Skype, there's no Zoom, there's no WebEx. So you, you can't Skype home to your family or Zoom home to your wow. family. There's, we have to keep the bandwidth um, available for science. So at any any moment in time, the scientific equipment in Antarctica is uploading data. So it's reading the sky or it's reading um, all sorts of scientific data. And it has to be available to upload to the scientists back here in Australia and all around the world. And that's why we're there. We're only there for science. So you go down there knowing that you won't see the face of someone you love for a year. And that's just, that's the reality. And it's the reality there today. So there's not a lot to do outside work when you're you know, work keeps you busy, but outside work, there's not a lot of things to do. And so I was concerned that in that case, people might get bored and they'd sit in the bar and they'd drink alcohol and then I'd have a whole suite of issues around, you know, potentially what could happen if someone's drunk too much and, and the ramifications of, of someone drinking on a, on a school night and not being ready for work the next morning or, you know, operating equipment in a dangerous environment the next morning. So I thought, right, how do I break up this boredom you know, without being Julie McCoy on the love boat and being the social director, I thought, how do I, how do I break, how do I break up this boredom? And so I came up with this concept of Super Tuesday, and I just put this sheet up on the on the wall in our um, lounge area, dining area, and I said, look, if anyone has got any particular knowledge or skill that you'd like to share with the community, put your name down and your topic, and let's have from seven o'clock to eight o'clock every Tuesday, we'll just have this, you know, Super Tuesday session. I honestly thought maybe three or four people would sign up and maybe 10 people would turn up, but the entire thing was fully subscribed within about four days. And we had people talking about living in Prague for a year. Someone spoke about digital photography. Someone um, someone taught Italian lessons. Someone taught, oh, we had a, we had a Gothic woman who talked about pagan rituals and paganism, which yeah. was fascinating. So all these topics, um, someone did astronomy, all of these amazing topics. And what it did, and I didn't recognise it right at the time, I just thought, wow, this is a great way to, you know, to keep the, the folks occupied and out of the bar and it'll keep them out of harm's way for an hour. But what happened as a, as a result of that was people started to respect each, each other for all of these skills and knowledge that every single person has. You just don't bring them to work. So every person listening to us today will have some kind of experience or skill and it might be running marathons or it might be speaking three language there'll be three languages there'll be something that they're skilled at that their colleagues will have no idea about and so what it did was it built the respect in the team that you could say you know I'm still not I'm still not a huge fan of that bloke but gee I respect the fact he's a real maestro in playing four instruments or I respect the fact that they know everything about Grand Prix around the world or whatever their topic was and just it was another way of learning about the person. And, again, it was never designed to make them love each other or like each other. Well, actually, it wasn't designed for anything. But the outcome of it was <laughs> that we, we started to res- respect, you know, gee, that person knows a lot about this. And it just, yeah, it built respect in the team, which was the foundation of the team. So, yeah, it was a really interesting experiment that, that worked. 
as it turns out, you've intuitively tapped into something that turned out to be enormously important for your group and has led to a lot of the work you've done now, which is based around – and it's not that harmony is not important. I think you make that very clear in the book. Harmony is an inc- incredibly important element of, of good teams. But respect, as you say in the title, trumps harmony. It's, it's more significant. Um, and if you have to choose between one and the other, you choose respect – and an activity like this develops, you know, that sort of respect and, and rapport. Um, tell us about the, you know, because you've said in the book um, that when you focus on harmony, you won't get innovation or new ideas or opinions or counter views as nobody wants to rock the boat. Um, so if I'm having, you know, and one of the other things you talk about in the book is difficult conversations. If I'm having a difficult conversation if I'm concerned about having a difficult conversation with someone, I'm thinking about two things. One, I'm thinking about getting what I want, but the other one I'm thinking about is not damaging the relationship with the person and not appearing to be, you know, the enemy or a difficult person or whatever. Um, but you're you're suggesting in here that harmony can really get in the way of innovation um, and, you know, the sharing of ideas and opinions. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I tr- and I really do think it does. Um, and anyone, including myself, I've it's happened dozens of times. Any of us who have sat in a meeting and we've nodded and we've nodded and gone, yep, nodded, and then walked out and someone's gone, that won't work. You know, that's not going to work. Yeah. And you just yeah. think, what what stopped them raising that at the time? Like, what, what was the barrier to them actually? Why? Why didn't you say that in the meeting? Because that's the time when you should be saying it. And I think that's what happens when there's a, a, a culture or a focus on harmony and keeping the peace. And people won't put up their hand and offer, offer a different idea or a different experience or say look what something I've used in the past that worked and that's where the innovation comes from so people coming up with coming in with their own experiences and their own ideas and not being afraid to to launch their ideas and their experiences and they're not afraid of someone shouting them down and you need a, a, a culture where a robust culture but a culture where people have the ability to to play the idea not the person you know play that play the ball not mm-hmm. the man sort of thing and it's that ability to understand it, you know, you can, by all means, you can challenge the idea, but don't personalise it and and use your words carefully. One of the things we did with our team was um, a thing called a LADAR. It's a language, just a language radar. And we, it was just oh, it was based on a scientific equipment down there called a LIDAR, which is a light radar. But this was our language radar. And so it's words that go ping like a sonar, ping, ping every time you hear them. And they were words like everyone, no one, always, yep. never. And so my team wouldn't come to me and say, Everyone thinks it's a bad idea because my, my later would go ping everyone and I'd challenge everyone, everyone. And they'd say, well, it's not everyone. It's not um, this person or that person. So, I'd, okay, well, it's not everyone. It's you. Similarly, always, if you say to someone, you know, oh, you're always late for work, the minute always is out of your mouth, they'll say, well, you know, last Friday I was 15 minutes early. And then it just becomes this emotional, horrible conversation. So the idea is to use facts and say, well, you're due here at 8.30, you arrived here at 8.45, we had a conversation last week and you said there's no reason why you can't get to work at 8.30, fact, fact, fact. It's a lot harder to deal with, you know, to argue facts than it is emotional words like everyone and no one and always and never. And I think part of it is creating that culture where people don't use those words, don't use those absolutes and emotional words and so you can have that conversation and that's where you get the innovation from. So you can actually have that robust discussion and know that it's not the person pushing back on me personally. 
there's you know you might throw an idea in the mix and someone might say yeah we, we've actually tried that one and didn't work but it's not a personal thing and it's a it's a difficult culture to get when you've got this harmony culture of we love each other and, and probably my biggest fear is around mental health because I've seen teams operate around harmony where you know we all love each other and we're like a family and everything's wonderful and it's so great here and and people are too afraid to put up their hand and go actually I'm not great right now and I, I would much rather a culture of respect where it's okay to talk about the fact that you're struggling a bit at the moment or you're just having one of those days rather than you paper over it and you keep this facade and keep the peace and isn't it lovely? And I really worry about teams that are, are built just on harmony because when they're put under pressure, they'll they'll shatter under pressure. And my yeah. team were great in a crisis. You know, we we're fantastic in a crisis, but it was never because um, we loved each other. It was because we had a foundation of respect. And I think this leads nicely into this idea of this, you know, fantastic concept of yours around no triangles. Yeah, yeah. So no triangles, oh, it changed my life, like hands down, and I wish I'd done it 30 years ago. But how it, how it came about, and this is literally how it came about, one of the men came to me in Antarctica and he was complaining about someone. He said, oh, did, did you see what Ian did just then, blah, blah, blah. And I said, would you like me to speak to him? Is that why you're telling me? And he said, no, no, I'm just letting you know. And I, I said out loud, I said, but hang on, if you don't talk to him and I don't talk to him, he, he's not going to know this is going on. And so he won't change his behaviour because he, he can't. And I said, and you and I will have this conversation next week. And then in my head, mm. I thought, oh, my God, we're here for 52 weeks. I'm going to have this conversation 52 times. And that's just one of you, the 17 <laughs> of you. So I just said out loud, I said, let's do this no triangles thing, hey? Let's You go directly to him. By all means, if you can't sort it out, then bring it to me. But your first port of call should always be to go to the person directly and show that respect that you've gone to them directly rather than run to the boss. And so when I got the team together and said, you know, let's 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 do this, let's have direct conversations, let's um, you know, show that kind of respect that if someone has annoyed you, go directly to them. Who you know, does everyone agree? And all the hands went up in the air. And that's an important part of no triangles. You actually have to get that physical hand in the air commitment to it. So then you can hold people to it. You can say, look, I saw you put your hand up and commit to no triangles. Why are you talking to me about it? Why aren't you talking to him about it? So as soon as I implemented no triangles and the guys were going to each other and they'd come running to me and I'd push back, I'd say, have you spoken to him about it? No, okay, well, you go back and, and I had to be rock solid, consistent. You go and speak to him first and then bring it to me. Uh, and once I did that, I freed up so much time and energy and it, it actually changed my life because I, I had the, the time then to go and spend doing the stuff I needed to do as a leader and actually showing showing leadership. It was a really simple tool but really powerful. But you also talk about the idea that by being the listener in these situations, we're really acknowledging that it's okay to have triangles uh, <gasps> unless unless we call people on it. Um, and we, Dan and I talk a lot about this idea of best professional self and I think this really ties in very nicely with your triangles idea. Um, tell me about being the, the passive participant in a triangle, like oh, the listener. And I know, and I felt so deeply ashamed of myself when I had that moment of recognition of how many times over the years I had done that, even as a leader, because I had this oh, misunderstanding or it was a, it was genuine, but I genuinely believed back then that just listening to someone vent was part of my role as a leader. I thought they're mm. just, they're getting it off the liver, they're venting, um, you know, they're just you know getting it out there, and if I just listen to it then, and let them, they'll get it off the, you know, get it out of themselves, and they'll go away happily. I didn't recognise at the time how damaging that, how exhausting it was for me, but how damaging it was that by listening to it, 
the other person didn't know that I wasn't contributing. They didn't know that I was just listening, but they would be fully aware that there was a conversation taking place about them with the leader. And I didn't realise that I was actually giving tacit approval to this behaviour just by listening to it and not shutting it down and not saying, well, the, the respectful thing to do is to go and talk to that person directly. And it's darn hard. If it was really simple, we'd all be doing it. It's a really hard thing to do, but it is so worth it if you persevere. And I think for leaders that the, the thing is you need to be rock solid and you can never do it yourself. So as a leader, you could never criticise another leader or never criticise anyone um, to a third party because, you know, then it dilutes the whole thing. But, yeah, you're spot on. It's that best professional self and it's about fairness, you know. Out of fa- it's not fair that, that people are complaining about you behind your back. And I honestly thought, you know, for years that just listening to it, you know, that's my job as a leader to soak it up and take absorb that kind of tension for someone else. And I realised, no, it's not because by doing that, I'm saying it's okay and it's not. It's not okay to complain about someone behind their back. Yeah, and you talk about big leadership in small moments and perhaps that also can be applied. I mean, definitely it can be applied to the triangles because essentially it requires everybody, not just a a leader, not just a principal in a school or a CEO in a company or a coach in a footy team or whatever it is. It's about everybody becoming a leader and saying, no, actually this stops with me. Tell us a little bit about, because you've got a great story from a a disaster, um, you know, uh, that happened in Antarctica while you were there and particularly the leadership of someone who didn't see themselves as a leader but certainly behaved as a leader. Yeah, and that was, oh, that was a moment. Um, so, we, yeah, we had a plane crash. We had a, uh, a bolt sheared off the landing gear and it actually stranded. The plane was stranded. We can't fly it without landing gear because we can't taxi. So I've got this plane stranded 500 kilometres away in the middle of this white continent and I've got four people on board They had 10 days worth of food on board, but we had about three or four days worth of blizzard. So until I could get an engineer out there to fix this plane, you know, they potentially could have been there for days, weeks. Uh, I just had no idea. And it was one of the most scary moments. But um, on day three of the search and rescue, the the team, so the search and rescue team, which is six of us, it's myself, the chief pilots and the weather forecasters, um, there's six of us on the team. We hadn't eaten all day. We were so caught up in the search and rescue. We'd missed lunch and we'd missed dinner. And at 10 o'clock at night, I said to the guys, look, we've we've got to eat, fellas. Let's just go over to the dining room and make a sandwich because all of the dining room's packed up at 7 o'clock. So this is 10 o'clock at night. And I said, let's just go and find a sandwich. We, We need to eat. And we've walked into the dining room and someone has plated up six meals and they've put cling film over the top and a little note with our individual names on each of the meals and I remember it vividly because it was a uh, it was a roast dinner and whoever did it, she didn't know what we liked. So she put everything on the plate. So we've got this plate with roast lamb and roast beef and roast chicken and roast pork. And it was just, you know, no vegetables were left, but it was we just got all the <laughs> proteins. And it was like, wow. And I went and found her and I, you know, I asked, I asked around. I said, oh, who did that? And I found out who it was. And I went up to Sharon and I said, look, that that is amazing leadership. And she said, oh, I'm not the, the team leader. Rick is the team leader. And I said, that's a title. I said, leadership isn't a title. Leadership is seeing something that needs to be done and doing something about it. It was a, bit, a big moment for me too as a leader because I realised then that I needed to be explicit about that. I, I had just assumed that my team would understand that leadership is seeing something that needs to be done and doing something about it or having a great idea and bringing it forward. And I realised I had to say those words. I had to actually say the words, I expect you to demonstrate leadership, every one of you. It took pressure off me you know, from being that command and control leader who had to know everything. But it equally, it devolved responsibility. 
So the entire team then felt that they had some responsibility and some influence on the the expedition goals and the, the role of the expedition team. And so it actually gave them purpose and it gave them ownership. Just quickly on the bay, I have to I have to just quickly tell you about the Bacon Wars because I think it's going to be critical in the next three months. I've been talking to groups about a leadership legacy, and I think. That's what this moment is for for principals and for coaches and for anyone in a leadership role. It's a legacy moment. How we handle the next three to six months will be remembered by our people for a long time. So we need to leave a lasting impression and we need to get it right. One of the things we need to think about is the bacon wars. And just the the highlights of the bacon wars was simply, it was a bacon war. It was a fight about whether bacon should be cooked soft or crispy um, between two teams down south. And when I got to the bottom of it, I found out one team, so the diesel mechanics thought the plumbers were cooking the bacon the opposite way to what they wanted just to irritate them. And I thought, this has actually got nothing to do with bacon. It's a, it's about respect. They're feeling disrespected. It's manifested in the bacon, but they're feeling disrespected. Mm-hmm. And I started to identify all of these little things that irritate people. And the reason they irritate people is that they're a symptom of a deeper issue and the deeper issue is a lack of respect. And the, the classic one in Australia is actually dirty coffee mugs and dirty staff rooms, you know, people leaving stuff around. And you know, it's yeah. the sign that says your mother doesn't work here, put your dishes in the dishwasher. And someone, you know, said that said to me, oh, by the time someone puts that sign up, they could have just put the dishes in the dishwasher. And I said, mate, it's got nothing to do with dishes. It's about respect. It's disrespectful. It implies my time's more important than your time. And, you know, I'm going to leave my stuff lying around and you can pick up after me. And, and the big one in schools is yard duty. And, you know, I've had uh, a principal say to me that there's a big issue around, say, say yard duty is the first session is 1.30 to 1.45 and then the next uh, teacher comes on at 1.45 to 2 o'clock. And so that 1.45 changeover, the second person's coming on at 1.50. And a principal said, oh, it's only five minutes. And I said, well, no, it's not about five minutes. It's about respect that it's cutting into that first person's lunch break. And so if they're meant to be on duty at 1.45, then they're in the yard at 1.45. At 1.40, they put their jacket on, get their drink bottle, high-vis, whatever. They're on duty at 1.45. And that might be different at your school, but you need to have the conversation around that expectation. Do you expect that at 1.45 we leave the staff room or do you expect at 1.45 you're on yard duty? And, and I used to think, why do these little things drive us crazy? And it's because they're a symptom of a deeper issue. And I think for other workplaces who are returning to work over the next few months, this is a brilliant time to, to draw a line in the sand to actually say, as we get back together, let's reset and let's recalibrate. And one of the things we can talk about is what's been great in the past and what hasn't been great and let's stop. And what have we picked up during isolation that we could keep, you know, what rituals can we continue? And actually using the next two months to, to define the culture from this day forward. And one of the things from this day forward will be to to win the war on the, you know, win the bacon wars. Let's identify all of these bacon wars and let's stop them here and now. Rachel, it's really been a delight chatting to you. I appreciate your time and thanks so much for sharing your stories with our with our listeners. Thanks for having me. I've had an absolute blast. I've laughed and you've made me think about a few things. So yeah, thanks for your time, Tim. I've had an absolute blast. Interesting chat there, Tim. I particularly, um, I could resonate with the uh, the bacon wars in particular and the no triangles, mm. uh, we see a fair bit of um, relevance, I think, in the in the work that we do um, it, with those two concepts and this idea of Super Tuesdays. Um, you know, we, we were talking that that resonates a lot with that whole idea of personising. Yeah, which, you know, that's a term we've used before. And as you heard in the interview there, you know, building on the work of Ed Shine um, from his book of, you know, about humble leadership. 
it's a really great idea. It's common sense and she's used it in a very common sense way. It's about getting to know the people who work with and for you mm. as a way of developing rapport and really building relationship so that you've got something to work with so that you understand that although, as Rachel says in the interview there, you don't have to be best friends with everybody, by knowing them better then you're able to work with them better with a basis of understanding and respect for those other people. Indeed. So, respects Trump. So, respect Trump's harmony. That's the title of the book, and uh, you can find a link to get a copy of the book in the show notes below. But um, if you found that conversation worthwhile, there's a fair chance somebody you know will find it worthwhile. So please feel free to share this podcast as far and as wide as you can. If you enjoyed the podcast, please don't forget to uh, rate the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, and even comment on the podcast wherever you get your podcasts, because that helps other people to find us. But until next time, thanks for joining us, Tim. Thank you very much, Dan. Thanks, listeners. And we'll see you next time. Take care. Take it easy. Thank you.